Today's scripture text, it is found in 1 Samuel chapter 12, 1 Samuel chapter 12, and Samuel said to all Israel, behold, I have obeyed your voice in all that you have said to me and have made a king over you. And now behold, the king walks before you. And I am old and gray, and behold, my sons are with you, and I have walked before you from my youth until this day. Here I am, testify against me before the Lord and before his anointed. Whose ox have I taken, or whose donkey have I taken, or whom have I defrauded, whom have I oppressed, or from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? Testify against me. And I will restore it to you. They said, You have not defrauded us or oppressed us or taken anything from any man's hand. And he said to them, The Lord is witness against you, and his anointed is witness this day that you have not found anything in my hand. And they said, He is witness. And Samuel said to the people, The Lord is witness who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt. Now therefore stand still, that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that he performed for you and for your fathers. When Jacob went into Egypt, and the Egyptians oppressed them, then your fathers cried out to the Lord, and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, who brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. But they forgot the Lord their God, and he sold them into the hand of Sisera, commander of the army of Hazor, and into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab. And they fought against them. And they cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned, because we have forsaken the Lord, and have served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. But now deliver us out of the hand of our enemies, that we may serve you. And the Lord sent Jerubbabel and Barak, and Jephthah, and Samuel, and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side, and you lived in safety. And when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us, when the Lord your God was your king. And now behold, the king whom you have chosen, for whom you have asked, behold, the Lord has set a king over you, If you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will will be against you and your king. Now therefore stand still and see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest today? I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain, and you shall know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord in asking for yourselves a king. So Samuel called upon the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day, and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. And all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God, that we may not die, for we have added to all our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king. And Samuel said to the people, Do not be afraid, 
you have done all this evil. Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you, and I will instruct you in the good and right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart, for consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. Let's pray together. Father, we are a forgetful and ungrateful people. You have done the kinds of deliverances for us. The sun rises on us day by day. The rains come, the grains get from the fields to the store, to the table, to our stomachs with scarcely a moment of anxiety. And the degree of intensity that we feel when we give thanks to you is so small compared to what it should be. We are unworthy servants at best. So we confess our sins and we ask for forgiveness for being like these folks and I pray that this word would be used to rescue us from that ingratitude and callous attitude towards your goodness. Come and show us your sovereign power in this story, I pray. Take us from our vanities, our preoccupations with worldly things, that give you so little credit, time, affection, allegiance, trust, obedience. Rescue us, O oh God, I pray, through Christ. Amen. This is the fifth in a seven-part series entitled Spectacular Sins and Their Global Purpose in the Glory of Jesus Christ. And the title of this message is The Sinful Origin of the Son of David. And the point is this. The kingship of Israel, the fact that Israel had kings, is owing to sin. A spectacular sin for the people of God. It is a spectacular sin. It only happened one time in the history of the world. For the people of God, with God ruling over them as king, to say, we don't want you to be our king like this anymore. We want to be like the nations. Give us a human king. Samuel calls it a great wickedness. That's the origin of the kingship in Israel. Which raises this question. Since Jesus Christ would not have come as the king of Israel, the king of kings, the son of David, what would have happened had it not been so? Had this great wickedness not have happened? 
Or maybe another question is more significant. Why didn't, since it's God's purpose, that Jesus Christ be exalted as the son of David, the king of Israel, and the king of kings? Why didn't God begin his dealing with his people, Israel, with kings? Make Moses the first king. Make Joshua the second king. Just do it that way. That would set it up, wouldn't it? Then Jesus could come in the line of the kings of Moses and Joshua and Jerubbabel and David and whatever. But why, God, begin your dealings with Israel with yourself as a direct and only king, with no human king, and only bringing about a line of human kings through a spectacular sin so that Jesus could be the king of Israel. Why do it that way? Seems sort of roundabout and gets real dirty with sin. And What's up? I mean, by the fifth message, we should be getting the idea that this is not unusual. So, our question then is why didn't he do it that way? Or what should we learn from the fact that he did it the way he did it? That Jesus Christ today is known as the son of David, king of Israel, king of kings because of this spectacular sin. We want a king like the other nations. We don't want you to be our king, God. And therein begins the line from which the Messiah comes. Here's, let's go back to the story now. Let's get the story, the big picture in front of us. Abram, chosen by God, Ur the Chaldees, to be the beginning of a people who would be his own Israel for 2,000 years to bring the Messiah. He chooses Abraham or Abram who becomes Abraham and he makes him a promise that all the families of the world will be blessed through you, Genesis 12, 1 and 2. One of the first people that Abram bumps into two chapters later is Melchizedek. Melchizedek, king of righteousness, king of Salem, he's called priest of the Most High God, and Abraham pays tithes to him. And when you get to the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, he makes much of this by saying that this Melchizedek is a type or a foreshadowing prefiguration of the Christ. He says it like this, Melchizedek is first by translation of his name, King of Righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace, resembling the Son of God. So already in the mind of God, according to the writer of the book of Hebrews, there's this prefiguring of the coming Son of God as king. And there's no king in Israel at that time. In fact, it would be a sin to have a king in Israel at that time. You get to Samuel's life. Now, Samuel was the last judge in that transition from judges to kings. He's the one who anointed David as the first king. But go back to the beginning of his life. There are no kings. 
There should not be any kings. And his mother Hannah is barren with no babies. She's weeping over this. And Eli thinks she's drunk, criticizes her. She says, I'm not drunk. I want a baby. I want a son. And he pronounces a prophetic promise over her. The baby is born. His name is Samuel. Three years later, she brings the baby and gives him to the Lord. And this is what she sang. Chapter 2 of Samuel, when there was no king. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will strengthen his king and exalt the power of his anointed. That's Hannah talking decades before there was a king. And when it would have been a sin to have a king. Deuteronomy 17, 14 Moses gave instructions centuries before, gave instructions about the kingship if the people would be disobedient. Deuteronomy 28, 36, he foretold the going into exile of a people with their king if the people rebel against the Lord. So I'm concluding that when you get to 1 Samuel 12, which we just heard read, when you get to 1 Samuel 12, This event, this great wickedness of putting a king in place is no surprise to God. He knew it was coming. He not only knew it was coming, he knew he would permit it when it came. And as we have said over and over, when God plans to permit a sin... It's part of the plan. He always permits things wisely. He doesn't permit things foolishly. If God permits a thing, he knows what he's doing with the permission, where it's going, what it's leading to. He folds this into the plan from the beginning. This great wickedness is now part of the way that his son will come into the world as a king and be known as the king of Israel and the son of David and the king of kings. So before we ponder why he would do it that way, let's make sure that we see that the demand for the king started earlier. It started in chapter 8. And then... He's picking it up in chapter 12. Let's go to chapter 12, verse 8. Chapter 12, verse 8. Second half of the verse. Samuel says to the people, knowing what they're up to, The Lord brought your fathers out of Egypt, made them dwell in this place. In other words, he's been gracious to you. He's been a good king. Verse 9. But they forgot, your fathers forgot the Lord their God. And he, to- and he sold them into the hand of Sisera, commander of the army of Hazor, and into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab. And they fought against them. Verse 10. And they, the people of Israel, cried out to the Lord, their king. We sinned. 
because we've forsaken the Lord and have served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. But now deliver us out of the hand of your enemies, out of the hand of our enemies, that we may serve you. And amazingly, verse 11, the Lord sent Jerubal, Barak, Jephthah, and Samuel and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side and you lived in safety. That's what a good king does. He lets you live in safety. You cry to him. You, you keep allegiance to your king. He fights your battles. And you're safe to do what's good to do. Like love your king. But verse 12. When you saw that Nahash, the king of the Amorites, came against you, they were enjoying safety. God was their king. He had delivered them. But here comes Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, against them. You said to me, to Samuel, No, but a king shall reign over us. And you can almost hear the broken pain in his voice with these next words. You said that. No, but a king will reign over us. When the Lord God was your king. Can you hear it? Is that maybe the way he said it? The disbelief in his voice. You ask for a king when God is your king. What should Samuel do? God told him what to do in chapter 8. I'll read you chapter 8, verses 7 and 9. God told Samuel how he should respond to this great wickedness. The Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. And so, Samuel says here in chapter 12, verse 13, Chapter 12, verse 13, second half of the verse. Behold, the Lord has set a king over you. And then he calls for a sign from the Lord, thunder and rain, and it thunders and rains. And then he calls it a great wickedness, verse 17. Is it not wheat harvest today? I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain, and you shall know and see your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord in asking for yourselves a king. So they have done what he calls a great wickedness. And God says, give them their king. Now, lest we miss the point that God made the first king of Israel. God did this. Let me read to you from the sermon that Paul preached in Acts 13 as he was rehearsing the history of Israel. He said in Acts 13, 20, God gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king and God gave them Saul the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king. So there's no question who put the king in place. God put him in place. 
Through a great wickedness, God installs the first king of Israel. It came through a great wickedness, and God put him in place through this great wickedness. So let me ask the question again now. If God saw in this spectacular sin, if he saw this coming, and he knew that he would permit it, and thus establish the kingship of Israel as part of his plan to glorify Christ, then why didn't he make the kingship, if he needed a kingship for Christ's sake, why didn't he make kingship part of the plan from the beginning? Moses, the first king. Joshua, the second king, and so on. Why does there have to be God ruling first with no king, a great wickedness, and then human kings by God's design? Why that way? What shall we learn from that? And in the rest of this message, I want to give you six things that the Bible, God, wants us to learn from doing it that way. Number one, we are to learn from this story in a way that we wouldn't learn it had we not read this story that we are a stiff-necked, rebellious, and unthankful people. I say we, and I mean we humans, including Christians. Why does he begin telling the story, this writer, of 1 Samuel the way he does, reminding them that God brought them out of Egypt. He brought them into the promised land. He rescued them from wicked kings. He was a good king. Why does he begin that way? To show how ungrateful they are, how rebellious and stiff-necked they are. And that's the story of humanity. This, this book, especially the first two-thirds of it, is God's word and one of the lessons, one of the great repeated lessons, and we're slow to learn, which is why this is a very fat book, I think. We're slow to learn that John Piper is ungrateful. So let's just take it to ourselves now and just ask yourself this question. If you just take God himself and how great and glorious and wise and true and merciful and patient and righteous and just and Awesome he is. Just himself. And then his 10,000 blessings upon you personally. How's your, how's your gratitude level? I mean, on a scale of 1 to 100, and 100 being as intense and constant as it should be, and 0 being nothing, where is it? Well, mine's not... I mean, mine is 60 some days, 40 some days. I mean, let's face it. If, if we're going to be judged on the basis of the appropriate intensity of our affections of gratitude and yieldedness and trust to the living God, we're, we're done for. And this text makes me see myself way more clearly. And that's the first lesson. We are an ungrateful, stiff-necked, rebellious people 
the sweetest among you is that way. And we would stay that way if it weren't for grace, which I'll get to in a minute. Number two, we should learn from his doing it this way, his putting in place a kingship this way, how faithful God is to his own name. Look at verse 22. For because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. It has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. The deepest foundation of God's faithfulness is his allegiance to his own name. His jealousy, his zeal for his own glory. I want you to read slowly this verse. The Lord will not forsake his people for his great namesake. The Lord will not forsake his people for his great namesake. Do you see why he didn't forsake them? His faithfulness to his people is rooted in his faithfulness to his name. If God were to cease to be faithful to his name, there would be no hope for sinners like us. The Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake. It doesn't say for our, for our great name's sake, but for his great name's sake. God is totally committed to upholding the worth of his name. Your salvation does not hang on your worth to God. It hangs on God's worth to God. When you stand at the cross and you see what it achieves for you in vindicating the righteousness of God that he might be the justifier of the likes of us, your eternal praise will not be, I was a diamond in the rough that he finally recognized. That will not be your song in eternity. Your song in eternity will be that God found a way to uphold his infinite worth while saving undeserving sinners. That's what we'll sing about at the cross forever and ever. So the second thing that we should learn from this story is that God's allegiance to God, God's upholding his name, God's faithfulness to his glory is the ground of our hope. Third, we should learn from this story how amazingly grace for sinners like us flows from God's supreme allegiance to his own name in the midst of sin. Grace flows to sinners from God's allegiance to his name. They're terrified in verse 19. They've seen the storm. They know they've committed a great wickedness. And in verse 19 they say, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we may not die. For we have added to all our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king. 
And the words that follow are a picture of the gospel of grace. Look at verse 20. To that desperate cry, Samuel says, Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. I remember the first time I saw that, I thought, misprint. Surely it must say, be afraid, you have done all this evil. Surely it must say that, that's what you say, isn't it, after you've done evil. Be afraid, you have done all this evil. So, you check out the original and, uh, nope, that's what it says. Don't be afraid, you have done all this evil. And you know you're dealing with something very strange. It's called grace. Some of you have such a bad track record. All of us have bad track record. Some of you are feeling it. And I just hope the Holy Spirit breaks in on you with this. You can feel so paralyzed by your sin, so hopeless. Like there's just no future for the likes of me. I could never be one of those Christian types with hope in heaven and getting their act together and trying to humbly walk with God. Just no way. That's never going to happen to me. And this kind of thing is in the Bible to break in on you. Be amazed at these words. Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. So the question rises, how can he say that? How can he, how can he have a just and wise and holy God who has just been rejected as king? Treason! You chop off the heads of treacherous people when they reject you as king and take up arms against you and demand a substitute king. You deal with it. And, and God says, don't be afraid. Now, what's the basis of such an amazing, gracious response? And, and the answer we have seen. This is the connection between number two and number three. It's God's allegiance to his own name. Verse 22 again. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great namesake. When these people hear the words, don't fear, you workers of a great wickedness, don't fear. They should not say, oh, oh, he must recognize in us something really valuable. That's the American distortion of the gospel of Jesus. Turning the gospel into God on a quest to find people worthy enough to be saved. That is not the gospel. There are no people worthy enough to be saved. And the people God is looking for is pure sinners who have given up rebellion and have thrown themselves on him for mercy. And he is willing to save those who cast themselves on him for his name's sake. For his name's sake. His name becomes at stake when you cast yourself on the mercy of the king. It isn't you, it's not me, it's him. This, here's a little word. You've read this text, but just want to 
take a familiar verse from the New Testament and underline the allegiance of God to himself as the ground of our hope. This is 2 Timothy 2.13. It says, If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny... Somebody tell me what it says. Himself. Mercy flows to us because God cannot deny himself. That's number three. Number four, we should learn from God's doing it this way, bringing about the kingship through a great wickedness like this, that only God can be the rightful king of Israel. Had God put in place Moses, Joshua, all of judges as kings. How would it be made plain? Only God is the king of Israel. When God did it the way he did it, by saying for some centuries, I am your king alone. No man is your king. No man can be your king except through a great wickedness. And then kings are started. What should these people think? I think they should think no man can be the king of Israel. Period. No man can be the king of Israel. Only God can be the king of Israel. They have rejected me from being king over them. If God had begun with Moses as king and Joshua as king and all the leaders as kings, it would not be plain at all. Only God is the king of Israel. Fifth, therefore, we should learn from this way of doing it, God's way of installing a human king, that his purposes in installing a line of human kings who cannot be kings, that they're all going to fail until God is king again in a way they never dreamed. He put in line, I mean, just, I just commend you, read 1st and 2nd Kings and 1st and 2nd Chronicles again. What's the point? The point is failure, 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 failure. There are no good kings, David included. They all end badly to the man. You just weep when you read this story. Isn't there one good king? Not one. David bringing down Joab with his gray hair in the last breath. He's just going to weep for the man after God's own heart. Can't you stand to the end? No. Because there is another one coming. There is no one to worship here in this line. There is no one to admire fully in this line. This line is about no man can be king of Israel. Watch him try. There's going to be a, a man 
a God-man. He began the way he did so that we would know only God can be king. And so we have to hope and wait for a thousand years and we'll see how God will be king of Israel. And now in this fifth point, there's a God-man in the plan. The last question on Jesus' lips silences the Pharisees. Remember what it was? He quoted Psalm 110, verse 1, which says, The Lord, Yahweh, says to my Lord, that's David calling the Messiah his Lord, The Lord, Yahweh, says to my Lord, the Messiah, the coming King, Sit in my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And then David looks to his accusers and says, after quoting them their book, If David calls him Lord, how's he his son? And that's it. There are no more conversations after that. What does that mean? If David calls the coming Messiah his Lord, how's he his son? End of conversation. No comment. On the way to the cross. The meaning is, when you think son of David, don't just think ordinary man. That's the point. When you think son of David, don't just think ordinary man. In the line, like the others, going to fail. He was more than human. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father. So, only God can be the King of Israel. So God's going to come and be the King. The God-man is going to be the king, which leaves us just one last observation. In doing it the way he did it, God showed not only that only God is the rightful king of Israel, but he has to be a man. God has to be a man. Why? Because we got some sin to deal with here in chapter 12. If he weren't a man, he couldn't die. God can't die. The king has to die. Why does the king have to die? Because of a great wickedness. A great wickedness that was just passed over don't be afraid don't be afraid I'm not going to kill you I'll forgive you you can't, you can't do that the judge of the universe cannot sweep crimes under the rug judges that sweep crimes under the rug are defrocked right God will not be defrocked and the reason he won't be removed from the bench of the universe is because he has a plan. 
Not only must the king be God, because only God is the rightful king, he must be man, because the king must die for the sins of the people. Otherwise, these people are all going to hell for the great wickedness. And you, many of you know the key verse in the New Testament that, that just opens that so widely to us. It's Romans 3.25. goes like this. God put Christ forward as a propitiation by his blood. In other words, God sent his son to die, shed his blood, to remove his wrath. That's what propitiation means. A propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance or patience, he had passed over former sins. Like what? Like this one in chapter 12 of 1 Samuel. He just passed over it. He said, don't be afraid. Oh, you treacherous God-rejecting people. Don't be afraid. Trust me. I have a way to save you from hell. And a thousand years later, according to his infinitely wise divine plan, the line of kings, which totally failed, comes to expression in Jesus Christ, who is God and man, so that he can be king and sacrifice. Otherwise, as king, he'd have nobody to rule. They'd all be in hell. The only reason we don't go to hell is because Christ died for us. Our king died for us. Did you hear it in the song? That thou, my king, should die for me. Do you remember, I have two more minutes. Do you remember every gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, tell the last court scene of Jesus being tried and have him say the same thing and his persecutors they say in every gospel are you the king of the Jews and Jesus says you have said so they, they rip their clothing and they put him on a cross According to plan for us and for all those rebels in 1 Thessalonians 12. In and through a great wickedness, God is putting in place a line of failing kings which would climax in a divine king and a human king, divine that he might rule, human that he might die. He rises from the dead and today he rules. And he's coming. So that you read in the book of Hebrews, he will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Are you? That's the only people he'll save. Those who are eagerly waiting for him. 
And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, and it is not King of the Jews. It is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Let's pray. Father, we bow to worship our King, Jesus Christ, the God-man, planned from the beginning through grace towards treacherous people like us who have rebelled against you so often we should be thrown away in a minute. And you continually, even tonight in this room, you have brought people here to help them hear the words, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. I sent my son to cover your sins. Rest in me. Fly to me. Cast yourself upon me. I am God and I am a savior. I'm not just a judge. I'm a king and I'm a king who dies and rises that I might have a people who are forgiven. So do a saving work, Lord, and do a strengthening work, do a hope-giving work in this room, I pray, for everyone. In Jesus' name, amen.